This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Workmaster. Jason is a member at Miller Chevalier and Jason focuses on his practice, his legal practice on government contracts in particular and oversight and compliance, all those wonderful things companies care about when they're dealing with the federal government. And uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Roger. And thanks uh, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. And I guess the the thing we ought to start, we're going to cover a number of issues today on the show, but I, I mean, big picture, you know, just wanted to start by asking you what you're seeing and, and sort of experiencing with regard to, you know, the impact of COVID-19 on government contractors and, and government agencies generally, performance perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, it's we're now, what is it, goodness, it's the middle of, almost the end of June. Uh, And, you know, we were, you know, back in those uh, long forgotten days of March when this was all first starting, uh, you know, uh, we we did a webinar with you, Roger, on, you know, looking ahead to how COVID-19 is going to impact folks and, you know, just looking, thinking back to what we were, there was just webinar after webinar, the entire government contracts community was, you know, out there talking about COVID-19. And, you know, I, I think, you know, what were we talking about then? You know, we were talking about, you know, okay, there's going to be impacts to performance, there's going to be additional cost, you know, figuring out how you work through stay-at-home orders, impacts, you know, on, you know, just the put aside costs, you know, for a moment, there's just performance-wise, how do you convert, you know, to telework and, you know, all that kind of stuff and working through, okay, the government, the federal government's telling me I got to work, but the state government's telling me to stay home, you know, how do I figure out all that? So that's kind of where we were. Uh, you know, in Congress very quickly uh, in the CARES Act, uh, you know, those early days, you know, passed 30, Section 3610, which was designed to address, uh, you know, paid time off because of this expectation. 3610 was aimed directly at government contractors. You know, the expectation being or the thought being, okay, okay there's going to be a lot of contracts that there's going to be stop works and you're going to have an idle workforce. And, you know, what do we do about that? So 3610 was enacted uh, to provide uh, relief uh, in that scenario. So, you know, where, where are we now three months in? Uh, you know, I think the initial shock, I guess I would say, of, you know, uh, trying to continue to work uh, has worn off a bit. Those COVID-19 webinars have tapered off a fair amount. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think where we are now is for the most part, I know that I, I think you participated in this too, Rod, you know, GSA, I don't know, this is a few weeks ago, I guess, you know, I mean, GSA was reporting, you know, there, at least for GSA's own contracts, there had not been a lot of significant stoppage. You know, we have, you know, I can tell from our perspective at Miller, you know, we have not been inundated with calls of, uh, oh my goodness, all, you know, we've been told we, we can't work and all that kind of, for the most part, you know, we were, you know, at the beginning of this, uh, so in the webinars we were doing, we were we were saying this. Look, the gov- this is not like a shutdown situation. You know, this is not, 
I mean, the government has money. I mean, you know, there's no, uh, you know, lack of appropriations, and uh, the government is still open uh, for business for the most part. And that's, I think, by and large, that's what we're we're seeing. You know, we were just before we we got on uh, to today. You know, you and I were discussing DOD's view that uh, there may need you know billions of dollars uh, to address COVID-related uh, impacts. And that very well may be. I mean, I, I, I mean, DOD obviously uh, is basing that on that view on something. I don't think, though, that it's going to principally be uh, contractors seeking relief uh, under 3610. You know, 3610 has a very fairly narrow uh, scope, which is your workforce can't work. You know, it's idle labor. Uh, that can't, you know, that, that that's what it's focused on, you know, for paid additional paid leave. So, you know, I don't think for the most part, that's really where the action is going to be. Uh, what we've been telling folks now, uh, and I, th I think this, this is where we, we are starting to see some questions, it's in other types of impacts uh, from COVID. Not so much you have an idled workforce because, you know, the you know they've got to stop work or whatever. Um, but it's my performance has been so altered and you know that there that's just back to your old plain vanilla uh rea uh process you know constructive changes and that kind of stuff i mean that stuff that uh government contracts lawyers learn you know their first year of practice uh is that you know more traditional stuff uh that i think we're going to be seeing and that's where i could see the you know the billions that uh, DOD is talking about potentially coming uh, into play because I mean, if you've had to, you know, build out your IT infrastructure, you know, particularly, you know, if you're concerned about, you know, cyber, you know, the government cybersecurity rules, which you know they're pushing forward with CMMC. If you're worried about that, now you have a lot of work, your workforce telecommuting, and you've incurred additional cost. You know, I could see you trying to recover that. I could see some claims there, but I think all of that, you know, even though it seems I don't know about you, Roger, but for me, it seems like we've been doing all of this for a very long time. It's only three months, uh, which the uh, wheels of justice turn slowly. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be a while before we start to see the litigation. But I'm quite confident that at some point here, you know, there will be REAs and claims and some of those will get denied. And as we've been saying from the beginning of all this, I mean, the, the key issue there is going to continue to be how do you make the case that the increased cost you're experiencing wasn't just caused by COVID, but was the result of government direction in response to COVID. Because the government, you know, there is no clause uh, in your contract that expressly says you shall recover all additional costs resulting from COVID. You don't have a clause like that. So you know, you're going to need to be looking back for those traditional remedy granting provisions. And the one that, of course, most readily comes to mind is the uh, changes clause for fixed price contracts. Now, if you have a cost type contract, you know, all of this should be largely immaterial uh, to you. Uh, but for fixed price contracts, you know, that I can, yeah, that's, where, so that's where we what, see the issues. So with that, in that regard, what your advice for companies in terms of like documentation, 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 yeah, the key to addressing these kind of issues. Absolutely, and the documentation there, the gold standard, is going to be, I mean, that ideally you get a you know written modification 
a two-year contract signed by the contracting officer. But you know, anything. So that's the that would be the you know the pure gold standard. But you know what you're really looking for is memorializing contracting officer direction to do the things that are causing you additional cost. I mean, that's really what you're looking for. And anything short of that, you're going to likely have the normal argument you have in, a, in every constructive changes case almost, is what you did was it the result of the government, an authorized representative of the government telling you to do it. Right. And COVID plays in, you, I mean, it's, it's a great explanation. And COVID is just kind of a, it's over here and it impacts it, right? But Absolutely. it's not direct, right? I mean, you might be, saying, well, I need to do X, Y, and Z because of COVID, but you need to have the contracting officer or whoever say, okay, go ahead and do that. Right? Exactly. You need, you need to connect the dots from COVID to the contracting officer. Right. That's what you need to do. I mean, the COVID is, I have no doubt, COVID is leading the government to causing the government to tell contractors to do X, Y, and Z, but you know, you need to have that documented. Right. Uh, because, you know, if you're just, if you're worst case scenario, you're reaching the end of your contract, and you discover, oh my God, I've lost my shirt. You know, I'm millions of dollars in the hole. And, oh, I think it's because of COVID, but you don't have a record of the government, you know, and then you go to the government and say, oh my goodness, we had all this impact from COVID. And once we're on the other, especially if you're look, coming back to that issue, when we're on the other side of all of this, yes, you may have a very non-receptive audience. So, you know, again, our, uh, you know, along with documentation, documentation, it kind of goes hand in hand, is communication. Yeah. So, well, we do have to take a break. And when okay. I come back, I want to pick up on this a little bit more and talk about um, some other best practices and just some other things you're seeing in response to COVID-19. And my guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier. And we spent the first segment, Jason, talking about, um, yeah, I guess, sort of the impact of COVID-19 on government contracting generally, and particularly, you know, the issues around performance and, you know, requests for equitable adjustment, constructive changes, and just... Yep something around there uh, but you know just to close out that topic area do you have other things that you're seeing or thoughts you have for companies who are in this and even the government in this mix right now i think the point of documentation and then communication are key they're sort of fundamental to yeah. good performance in any event but even more so now but other thoughts yeah, I mean, a, a couple things. I mean, one, one we've talked about so far, we've just been focusing on kind of the, the performance impact of, you know, working through the upfront issues, the cost impact, REAs, that kind of stuff. But we, so we've been talking about kind of that, that affirmative relief. You know, there's also just kind of the defensive side of this is, you know, if you find yourself, you know, and, and this is, again, it's tough to gauge, you know, uh, how much of this there's activity there's going to be. You know, but if you find yourself just unable to perform because of COVID-related impacts, you you know, end up in a default situation. Uh, you know, documenting all of that, your reason that you cannot meet your deadlines or whatever is because of COVID is going to be important because you may have an excusable delay defense to a government default termination action. Again, I think it's unlikely that there's going to be a lot of that, that activity, but again, just good contract hygiene 
you know, you're going to want to do that. One other point, just kind of, you know, at, at some point here, we are going to get on the other side of COVID, uh, and then it's going to be enforcement action time uh, and audit time. Uh, looking back, and uh, you know, one thing to be thinking about with telework, timekeeping, uh, especially you know, for contractors that have cost type contracts, TNM, labor hour contracts, where the amount you're billing to the government is dependent upon how much people are putting down on their timesheets, right? And that has always been a fertile area <laughs> for yeah. enforcement, right? So where you're talking about audit activity and, and, you know, heaven forbid, False Claims Act activity, you know, those have always been areas where the IG and the audit community and the Justice Department and relators, uh, uh, key TAM relators, you know, whistleblowers, are always interested in those issues. And, you know, that kind of, you know, folks being so much at home now, uh, I think, that issue is kind of on crack, you know, at this point. Right. Are people really working? How do we prove that they're working? Are those, you know, with, you know, all of, you know, people being on their computers now 24-7? You know, and again, you know, I mentioned the, disc, you know, the, the relator community. I mean, I've been on a number of False Claims Act cases, you know, that involve timekeeping issues, and you get some disgruntled employee. Joe's, I know, I see him out walking his dog. You know, he lives three doors down from me, and I, I know he's not working, right? right. And, and right. you get those facts, and, you know, those kind of things can uh, come back to bite you. So, you know, making sure that you have good, if you're a contractor, making sure you have good policies, procedures in place, you know, that you have confidence that the hours that are being recorded are actually being worked and are verifiable. Yeah, I can see, you know, the oversight community, the, you know, just looking forward to you know <laughs> oh, it's it's a it's a field to, day roger right, right. it's a field day and i think perhaps too when you think about that it, i mean it's sort of a you know new operating dynamic right i mean you know probably coming out of this you would think there's going to be more more telework you know it won't be a hundred percent right it's, right i mean i don't think anybody well maybe some people like that idea but i think that it's going to be a mix but i think you know that what's this has demonstrated is you can be a f do the work yeah you know from a telework perspective so there's probably going to be more of it so you're just going to have a whole probably set of best practices coming out of this and lessons learned and that sort of thing that i know you will be sharing with your client <laughs> yes. and others on this yeah. show right yes so. no it's it's yeah i mean, I, I think the work world is going to look uh, the government contracting work world uh, at least, you know, the consultants and, uh, you know, the, the services, uh, professional services, that kind of stuff, especially that uh, is going to be, you know, I don't know that we'll ever go back to exactly the way, you know, that it used that it used to be. So I, I think you're right. And I think it'll take a while for everybody to catch up with. I don't think it'll continue to the extent it is right now, forever. But I don't think it'll ever go back to as many people being in offices as uh, as before all this. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be a while before we have those best practices uh, in the audit community, because I, I think people's work days are you know could look end up looking very very differently now and on the other side of this, and how the audit community deals with that is going to uh, be interesting. Yeah. So let's turn to you know uh, another sort of topic that people are following closely, and you know that's. And I guess, you know, we're in a sort of state of like now waiting and the clock is really starting to run out here. <laughs> yes. That's uh, Section 889. Yes. Um, which is the 
prohibition on selling Huawei, ZT, other Chinese company uh, stuff to the federal government, but uh, that's the first part that's been implemented, right? Last year, correct, correct. Uh, prohibited the sale to to the federal government of their those companies' equipment. Well, the other part is you know the prohibition on contracting with someone who uses their equipment in their operations, and that yes. language. Um, well, I'll turn over you. Just the language is very broad, right? You want to describe? Oh, it is. It is, it is extremely broad. Uh, yeah, so we're, what we're talking about here is Section 889 uh, of the, it was the 2019 NDAA that uh, implemented, as Roger was just saying, implemented two different uh, prohibitions, one on the government's procurement of Huawei, ZTE, other Chinese technologies, telecommunications technologies, and now the one that's upcoming, which currently is scheduled uh, in the statute, under the statute, is to go into effect on August 13th. Uh, of this year, uh, as Roger was just saying, is a prohibition on the government contracting with an entity that uses uh, as a, a system service, any system that uses such telecommunications equipment. So it is very broad. There was a DOD meeting on this just before uh, the kind of the stay at home and, you know, the pandemic response hit uh, when people were still meeting with each other in person, uh, you know, and DOD at that public meeting confirmed that their view is use is very broad and DOD said some interesting stuff at that meeting. Uh, one, they did say, you know, so the prohibition is on the government contracting with an entity that uses systems that use the equipment. Right. So DOD said, look, that is a prohibition on entering into a prime contract with an entity that is using a system that uses the equipment. So it's at the prime level. But what does it mean for the prime to use a system that uses the equipment? And this, this issue is raised with DOD. Well, if you read that very broadly, that doesn't just mean the equipment that the prime contractor itself owns, but it also applies to the equipment potentially, you know, not just of subcontractors under its government contracts, but of vendors. I mean, you think about like, you know, if you're a, 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 if you're a contractor, your, your telephone company, you know, I mean, if you are, if you are using a telephone company that uses, to, I mean, it, it's a very broad, right. you know, your, your cloud service provider, you know, is that a system that uses this telecommunications equipment? So, I mean, it, it, and DOD, at least as of, you know, March, was still reading that, because uh, the question came up and DOD said, yeah, we're reading that, the statute says use, right? Uh, and that's a broad word. Yeah, and it's not just your government operations, it's no. all commercial operations, it could go Correct. theoretically, I mean, it also involves like uh, surveillance equipment, so you could theoretically be renting a warehouse that has a cameras, that's are you from one of the prohibited sources that are used in you know watching the building that's yep. is that use is that not i mean under the statute one would could credibly argue that yes it is and just how you implement that but jason that's so what we've done is really stated like what the, scope <laughs> yes. of the law is yeah now we have to take a break but okay. come back, we can talk about where we are you did mention the deadlines coming up august yep. 13th for implementation where we are with regard to the rule and, and what you see down, coming down the road and what companies need to think about.
Okay. Okay. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier, and we're talking government contracts and you know, the last segment, Jason, we started our conversation about Section 889, and hopefully we can finish it for this segment. Yes, um, yes. Of course, we could do a whole show just on on, on it, I think. Yes. Um, but, you know, so, and, you know, we just, you described the, you know, the scope, the applicability of the law as very, very broad, covering any type of use of the equipment and the government's prohibition on contracting with someone who uses you know, the prohibited stuff. So, and then you did mention we have an August 13th deadline by statute for implementation. Yeah. Yeah. So what, you know, where are we with implementation and, you know, and what, what are you hearing and what are you telling, you know, companies with in this regard? Uh, well, as you, as you and I sit here right now, uh, we are still waiting uh, on a rule uh, to be issued that would hopefully, you know, come with enough advance notice to provide some opportunity to comment. You know, I mean, if we, if passed as prologue though, Roger, I mean, if folks will remember what happened last year, the interim rule implementing the first prohibition was issued, you know, and went into, into effect immediately on August 13th. So there was no, you know, no advance issuance of a proposed rule. Simply we got an interim rule and it immediately went into effect on the date that had been established by the statute. You know, there's been some uh, other trade associations uh, earlier this year asked for, uh, went to Congress to try to get Congress to push this off in light of, you know, the COVID response. Um, You know, DOD has uh, indicated some, you know, receptivity to that notion, but, uh, you know, it's a politically sensitive issue. Uh, you know, if the, if uh, you know there is a strong, uh, apparently a strong view in Congress, you know that is very, uh, let's let's say, not pro-Chinese uh, at the moment, uh, and so I th- I could see, you know, an effort, a legislative effort to push off the deadline, put really coming up against some strong political headwinds, and it might not happen. So right now, and you know what we've been telling clients is the deadline is August 13th. It's in the statute. Uh, you kind of have to currently, uh, unless and until that changes, you've got to be ready. And so you know what we've been working with clients on. And again, you know this is, uh, you know the people that call their law, you know people that typically are calling lawyers. Uh, from, you know, so, you know, I, I recognize my, my worldview is very much affected by my job and who, you know, who it is that I'm talking about, you right, know, right. in these companies, you know, but the folks that are calling us, they, you know, they tend to be in-house counsel or they're contracts people. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, for the most part, those people don't have any clue what, uh, and I don't mean that pejoratively, uh, about what kind of technology their companies have. If the rule goes into effect, if the statute goes ahead and goes into effect on August 13th, we can almost guarantee that one of the things that's going to be required is a certification. When you get a solicitation, there's going to be a certification that you're going to have to represent that you don't use the prohibited technologies um, 
in any system, service, et cetera, uh, as a substantial component or critical technology. So, you know, there, you're, that certification is coming right now, August 13th. So the first thing to get ready for, it's like any other certification, you know, from, from a legal perspective. You know, you've got to do your due diligence to determine, can I make the certification? Because, I mean, the, the, and this isn't like, you know, if you, if, if you can't certify, yes, I'm okay. You're not getting a contract. I mean, it's, 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 I mean the statute is clear on that subject. You know, that, that is, a, is a prohibition on the government from entering into a contract with you if you can't make the certification. So, you know, you've got to get your house in order. And again, the first step in that is figuring out what you got. Right. And that's going to right. mean, you yeah. know, and that's going to mean going out, you know, and if you're the contracts person or if you're the lawyer, you know, what we've been advising folks is you need to be documenting. How do you even go, you know, who are you talking to? You know, who do you go and consult, you know, um, to, to determine, all right, so we have our own stuff and we have our own systems. We need to figure out what are the, you know, what are, what are we, what, what is our good faith interpretation of a system? And then we need to figure out, okay, well, you know, when we have vendors and subs, you know, to what extent are we using, you know, them as part of essentially our own enterprise, you know, and we're going to have to start sending out getting certifications uh, from, so I, I look at this, Roger, I know you're, you know, you're familiar with the Foliard uh, yeah. case as well. Yeah. I, I look at this very much like Foliard, which was a case uh, here in DC, uh, out of the DC circuit. It, in, it involved getting uh, reps and certs from a subcontractor with respect to TAA compliance, you know, Trade yep. Agreements Act compliance. But this is just, this is very similar to that situation in that you're having to go out to other entities and get reps and certs. And, you know, the law under Foliard is quite clear. And I'd say that this is, is pretty well settled throughout the country now, even though this is a DC circuit case. Reasonable reliance on a rep and cert will because what are you trying to protect yourself from with all of this stuff? You're really trying to protect yourself, well, from you know criminal liability, of course. But you know, if you make your if you know the 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 more likely thing is you know we always talk about Roger would be civil false claims act liability yeah. potentially. Yeah. And if you you know if you misrepresent, you know that you don't you you know so you're going to represent we don't use Huawei. And the other thing with this issue, Roger, also just as a practical matter, just think about how many people in your organization and in the other companies whose products and services you use, think of how many people are going to have some kind of knowledge about the kind of technologies that are used. Your pool of potential whistleblowers is enormous yes right yeah and and you know you've got to you know if and when there's someone raises their hand and says oh that was a lie you knew that you had Huawei equipment you know you got to be ready uh because and and this isn't like you know I, I often talk for the coalition on like csp disclosures and that kind of stuff forming the you know basis of for, for false claims act liability but if you just think about a political hot potato this Huawei rule is, you know, I don't know, 10, 20, 100 times more politically yeah. hot yeah. in CSP forms. So you, you could just, on the other side of these certifications coming in, you know, I do, th you know, everyone's always trying to predict what's the next big, you know, tranche of False Claims Act cases. 
but you know that I do think is is going to be somewhere something that's going to get a lot of attention, uh, and you need to be ready. And the time to be starting to get ready for it is now. All right. It seems to me too, if you're a multinational corporation, oh. you, which you you know, and you're doing business in Europe, I mean, you're relying on Huawei equipment one way or the other, right? Yeah, and and and, it, and, you know, and and deal, and and so far the government has been completely unreceptive yeah. to to the because there's been this whole argument of, well, the you know the United States is here is essentially trying to regulate, you know, uh, outside of its own territory, uh, and that you know there's been arguments that that's improper. Uh, you know, Huawei even went so Huawei did file lawsuits to challenge the constitutionality of this, um, and you know that that got rebuffed. Yeah. Um, so you know, we uh, it's it's uh, not you know I think as a practical matter, I think there are folks in DoD who are sympathetic, but whether they can turn that sympathy into anything more. Uh, to kind of either narrow the, I mean, and the other thing is, is you know, I, I, I for those who are kind of holding out hope that once we get the rule, there's going to be some kind of meaningful cabining of the obligation. I, I wouldn't be holding my breath that that that's going to be the way it is because the statute is so broad. I think the regulators are going to be nervous uh, about. Um, stepping you know any any you know any any significant difference or maybe not stepping any distance at all away from the text of the statute and that's what we saw last year i mean the the rule that was ultimately you know the interim rule for last year's prohibition i mean it just essentially parroted the statute i mean there was there was really you know nothing meaning really nothing meaningfully different between the regulation and the statute yeah it's often the way you know the the those rules get implemented, DOD rules in particular. Yeah. But, but you know what, Jason? We're up on the break. Already. Okay. So when we come back, um, I don't know if you have any other final thoughts on the Huawei uh, situation, Section 889, but I'll ask you. And then, okay. and then, then let's talk about the payroll protection program and sure. just some of the oversight, you know, I guess, opportunities slash challenges that yep. companies need to be thinking about who have. Um, receive funding through that program yep. in terms of what they're going to have to report and at the back end, right, what people are going to be looking right. at with regard right. to compliance. Right. Uh, my guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier, and I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. And Jason, we spent a lot of time there just talking in the last segment about Section 889 and the prohibition on, which has not been implemented, the part of the rule of the law, that prohibition on, con on the government contracting with companies who utilize you know, Huawei or ZTE equipment as, you know, part of their systems as an integral part of, you know, whatever the specific language is. I'll leave that to the lawyers. To, okay. Uh, All right. you All right. All right. But um, when you're looking at sort of two questions about it, um, first one is just from the approach of whether or not there's any kind of room to make adjustments, the difference between a delay or, um, and not a delay, what, what do you think people are thinking? Well, I mean, I, 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 you know, hopefully, you know, I think everybody's in agreement that there needs, you know, no, everyone takes the security issue seriously. There's no question about that. The question is how best we do we implement that 
without potentially, you know, breaking the bank. Um, and on the breaking the bank point, Roger, you know, the other thing that we're telling our clients, you know, at, at some point here, you have an existing contract, you know, the contracting officer is going to show up at your door to include this clause, right? I mean, all the other, actually, I, you know, it, it, it may, actually, I'd have to check back the statute. The, the statute talks about a ward of a contract. So this may, this may simply be, you know, forward facing. So to the extent that it will only be forward-facing and you don't have someone showing up at your door asking you to put this in the contract, um, you know, you're going to have to be thinking seriously about, you know, your pricing. You know, is, is, there, is there a way, you know, uh, to um, – a particular uh, is there a way to work this into your pricing to where, you know, you're not bearing the responsibility to rip all this, you know, equipment out of your system? So I mean that'd be one thing to be that'd be one thing to be thinking about. But again, I think that from the contractor's perspective, number one thing to be communicating to the government is you're on board with the fundamental notion that we have to be secure, right? And you know, working through the issues. Um, do you think? Do you think? Because I know they, they, you know, as I recall in the last, um, the, but it's a little bit more straightforward. You know, the first part of the. 889 rule was the prohibition yep. on selling to the government. So they, you know, like the schedule contracts, pre-existing yep. contracts, that was incorporated into those. Don't you think, I mean, at the end of the day, it's more likely and not, it seems to me, especially for like multiple board IDIQs. Or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Competing for task orders that they're going to incorporate that into the contracts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, for the, for the IDIQs, they're definitely going to have to, they're definitely going to have to incorporate it in. Because, I mean, since they're issuing task orders, Future, subsequently yeah. in the future they're absolutely going to have to incorporate it and if that's going to you know for existing idiq vehicles you know if that's going to affect if you have an argument that that affects the pricing at this at the idiq level your opportunity to address that is going to be when they come to you with the clause yeah, yeah. yeah interesting stuff i'll have to wait to see how it all plays out and you know what the good thing about it is it's like August 13th is rapidly approaching. <laughs> it certainly is. Or we I guess have... that could be the, the bad thing about it, too, I guess. I don't yeah, know. but, but you know, we, don't, we don't have long to wait. We're going to right. know how this story ends in a couple months. Right. Uh, or maybe it's the beginning of the, I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, true, too. So, yeah. so, so another thing I wanted to make sure we, we got a chance to talk about on the show is um, the Paycheck Protection Program. And yep. I know you're doing work in that area with regard to compliance and eligibility and things like yep. that. Can you talk a little bit about the program and then, you know, what companies need to think about on the back end who have received in terms of sure. what the SBA is going to be looking at? Sure. So this, the payroll protection program is again, another creature of the CARES Act, the stimulus package that was passed, you know, toward the beginning of the pandemic response, you know, and this, the purpose of the program is, as its name suggests, is to, you know, protect payroll uh, of small businesses and small businesses are those with 500 employees or less for, you know, the, a, a period of time, you know, so there were loans available uh, through the payroll protection program. The, what, you went to your bank, the program is set up such that, you know, if you use the money for certain, you know, designated purposes, the principal, one of them being payroll, you know, the idea is you have, you know, people who can't get to work, but you don't want to fire them and you want to keep paying them. That's the, you know, the idea behind this thing. Um, you get the loan, you use it for the enumerated purposes for a, a you know, given length of time. And then at the end of that, if you've used the money for the purposes for which it was you know, loaned to you, you can get 
loan forgiveness. So that's the concept. If folks will, you know, have been following the news over the last few months, you know, when this program first hit the street, you know, there were all kinds of folks that were, you know, going to go get, you know, making their applications. There was some uh, media coverage of things like, you know, Shake Shack, uh, you know, franchises getting uh, pay, uh, PPP loans. Uh, so, you know, fair amount of controversy right out of the box. You know, there is going to be, SBA is going to audit these loans. If you got a loan for over $2 million, it's going to be an automatic audit uh, that you're, you're, you're going to get reviewed. So, you know, the, the issues that we're on the look out, look, you know, look out for from the legal compliance audit perspective, you know, is, uh, you know, when you, when you went to get the loan, you're in the eligibility uh, application, when you're applying, you had to make a certification. You know, boy, we've been talking about a lot about certifications yeah. today, but uh, you had to make a certification that you, quote, unquote, you know, there was a necessity for the loan in light of the current economic uncertainty. So, you know, there's been a lot of, well, what is exactly does that mean that you, you know, needed, the, the loan was necessary? Uh, and, you know, uh, at the back end of this, just to kind of, you know, jump forward, when you want to go get loan forgiveness, you're going to have to submit a loan forgiveness application. And one of the certifications that you'll have to make in that is that you actually use the money for the enumerated purposes. Now, when the, when the auditors come in to audit, you're, and, you're, and they'll be able to audit for the whole life of the loan. So from the when you applied for it until you, you know, got forgiveness. And this, this, you have to keep the records for six years. So, and so the, the window of opportunity here for an audit <laughs> will last for a while, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if the auditors come in, and let's say you got a loan for $10 million. That's the maximum you could have gotten. So, and then you ask for forgiveness. And they go look at your balance sheet and they look at your P&L and they say, well, look, even without the loan, let's say you would have still had a positive balance sheet. Let's say you still would have, you know, had a profit of five million bucks. That is when the Monday morning quarterbacking is going to set in, right? The Monday morning quarterbacking of, well, it looks like things turned out okay for you. So how could you have certified up front that you really needed it, right? And then at the back huh. end, how could you certify that you actually used it? So when you, you know, apparently you had some other revenue streams coming in and you still made a profit. Yeah. So, you know, th those are the issues that, you know, we are counseling folks begin thinking about them now before the auditors show up, because you're going to want, you know, if you've already applied for your loan and gotten it, I mean, that kind of, that, sh you know, that ship of whatever the, I mean, whatever contemporaneous documentation you know, that you have of how you made the certification of need. I mean, that ship is kind of sort of sailed. I mean, that is what it is, but you would want to go ahead and start, you know, if you haven't already done so, you'd want to start gathering the documentation. You know, if you had clients saying, oh, we're not going to be paying you, you know, we're canceling your, con you know, you'd want to have that kind of all collected. And also with the use issue, you know, you, I, we've been recommending, you know, this is both a legal and an accounting issue. So yeah. we've been recommending folks because this whole traceability of money, you know, because some, what some folks have been doing, they've been taking their PPP loan, sticking it in a separate account and then paying payroll directly out of that account, separate and apart from their other, you know, normal, you know, bank account. Well, you know, money is fungible. So auditors may question 
you know, well, okay, yeah, okay, you did that. As an accounting method, I, as an accounting issue, I can see how the money traces from that account to this, but you, know, you have these other accounts over here that have plenty of money on them. Why weren't you using that money first? So, I mean, talking to your accountants and thinking about what is the best record to have when this issue gets looked at by SBA down the road, you know, thinking through those issues now, I think is, is you know, better, better to do it now, uh, especially if, if you have a loan over two million bucks, you're getting audited. Yeah. So, you know, it's better to do it now. And then you, that all of, of course, False Claims Act. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's what you're thinking about. You know, if they, if they, if they start, if, you know, if the auditors start feeling like, you know, the mis there was a misrepresentation at the beginning to get the loan, there was a misrepresentation to get the loan forgiveness, you know, then you're into False Claims Act, tour, False Claims Act, Act uh, territory. You're in the midst of an investigation and, you know, possibly being referred to the Justice Department. And that's what you want to avoid. Yeah. And it, well, it seems to me you're, you're, you've got a document to be able to tell, you know, the appropriate or not just the report, but the story of your company and the circumstances oh, yeah. as to why you need the loan. Correct. And some of this strikes me as, well, no, yeah, why didn't you spend money over here or why, you know, you're, you, you have a pretty good balance sheet. Well, I mean, it seems to me the flip side of that, what, what do you want me to do? Spend myself into oblivion? <laughs> That's it. I mean, the whole point is to keep people in business and, in business. and be able to employ, keep people and, on and, your payroll. And, and, and the notion that, you know, I mean, and there's no bright line rules here. So, you yeah. know, you know, I gave the example of you had the $10 million loan, you get it all forgiven and your left, your balance sheet still, still shows a $5 million profit. You know, as a lawyer, I would say, well, so what? There's nothing in the statute that says, uh, or, in the, or in the guidance that's been issued, there's nothing that says that, you know, that, that the analysis here is, did you make a dollar's worth of profit? I mean, there's no bright line rule here. And, and, but as a, just as a, again, as a practical matter, the fact that there is no bright line rule means that, you know, depending on the auditor you get, yeah. <laughs> you know, they might be, you, you, know, <laughs> you could get differences of outcome. Yeah. 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 Hey, Jason, that's great stuff. And we're, we're up against it. So, uh, okay. I want to thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, You're very welcome. Great conversation. I want to thank my guest today, Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed.
plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.